The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast, episode number 12. Today on the show, I've got Gary Atterbury. Gary's up in the Coordination Center uh, up in the Pacific Northwest these days, but before that, he was a jumper, and he was a jumper for a hell of a long time. In fact, he's probably been fighting fire for, well, longer than most of our listeners have been born. (laughs) So he's pretty much done it all. He uh, started as a rookie and moved his way damn near to the top over at uh, Redmond Jump Base, but uh, yeah, this is his story. The start to end, basically. Uh, it's it's heavy, not going to lie. It uh, covers basically the start of his career, all the way through his jump career, and uh, some things that happened, and uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely pretty crazy, but I think there's a great message behind this story right here, and uh, that's... That message pretty much goes out to everybody who needs help. Uh, he's definitely overcome some adversity, and I hope that this message uh, resounds with you guys that potentially need help or are seeking help at this time. And uh, it lets you know that there are resources out there for you guys. So, <laughs> he uh, named the episode. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, PTSD, Cardboard Flip-Flops and Coordination Centers, A Career Journey of a Wildland Firefighter with Gary Atterbury. Welcome to the Academy. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show I have Gary Adamberry. What's up dude? I had a lot. Day off, just trying to get the uh, laundry and groceries done. Yeah? <laughs> How's uh, life in PDX, man? It's awesome. It's, uh, it's a different world. What I do now, I call it the other end of the Pulaski. I like it. Dude, alright, so you're a MAC coordinator up in, uh, up in Portland right now, right? Not exactly. Um, I'm an aviation specialist at the Northwest Coordination Center. And then when the MAC group is uh, essentially seated uh, during like PL4 and PL5, I am uh, in a group. uh, It's called a MAC uh, support group. And I'm the aviation guy in that MAC support group. So I help out uh, kind of coordinating all the aviation assets in uh, the Pacific Northwest GAC and where they go and who gets them and whatnot. Fucking eight, man. I'm I'm pretty interested in this topic, but you got a big ass story to say. You got a lot of stuff to say, man. Let's go over that. Let's, so, how'd you start in fire, man? <laughs> I was thinking about that today. Um, I think it was like back in 1987. I just graduated from high school, 
and um, 87 was a, a, a pretty banner year in Oregon for fires and especially like late season fires and then I grew up in Portland and I was in Portland at the time and there was a lot of smoke in the air and on the news you would see all the um, you know the newscasts of tired firefighters sleeping underneath you in the shade of the engines and everything and I was like man I want to do that how do I get involved so I went down to the local fire station and just knocked on the front door of the fire station and said I want to I want to do that and they're like yeah that's not how it goes <laughs> get the hell out of here nerd <laughs> and so i was a little dejected um and then a couple of years later um i was at school at oregon state going to school um getting i was in a biology program and so there were some forestry classes and somebody came to uh one of the forestry classes and was talking about seasonal work for the forest service and i was like that sounds like fun so i applied and um i got picked up um, this place on the Umpqua National Forest uh, ranger station called Tiller Ranger District. I'm familiar with Tiller. Yeah. Awesome A lot place. of folks are. So I started there in 1990, and uh, I was hooked ever since. It just kind of became the addiction, huh? Yeah. This is back in yep. the days way before, like, USA Jobs or any of that navigating any of that new USA Jobs BS. So <laughs> it must have been I, a lot easier. Who, there's a lot of people listening that still probably remember the name of the form. It was like an SF-51 or something like that. It was like a one-page form that you filled out for your application. And essentially, it was like your name and your social security number. And then they gave you like two lines for your experience. Did you do the step test back then or would they have yep. back then step test? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So what's like the history of your career, man? Like uh, what have you done over the course of, I mean, that's what, 31 years of fire? Yeah, yeah, you're better at math than me, but okay. So, um, well, you've been fighting fire since I was born, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started in Tiller and I spent five years there. Um, and during that time, I was going to school also at Oregon State. So, um, and I was, uh, you know, fighting fire on a, on a like type 2 IA crew, um, looking at the shot crews on fires, I was like, man, I want to be a hot shot. That looks cool. The camaraderie, you know, the same t-shirts, the buggies, all that stuff, standing in line and, and the hard work. And I was like, man, I really want to do that. That looks like a hell of a lot of fun. So I, you know, I applied over the years and then, um, 95, I got picked up, um, on union shots out in the grand. Uh, and that was, that was just a whole different world. And that was, a, it was something that, I loved, I loved being a part of that, that unique camaraderie and being a part of a crew and especially in Legrand where you have union and Legrand right next to each other, two shot crews. Um, so, you know, living in the flop houses with the rest of the, the, the crew members and going to the bars and then driving around the buggies. And that was a blast. We went to, you know, got to go to Canada, um, and all the other places, you know, in the West, Southern Cal, all that stuff is a shot. And that was, that was a blast. And I did that, um, 95 and 96. And then, you know, I was living in Portland in the wintertime and you know, that lifestyle, that seasonal lifestyle back and forth and back and forth. Oh yeah. And, you know, I had living out of duffel bags and flop houses in Portland and flop houses in Legrand, And I told myself, well, and I always wanted to jump too. And I had applied and I had applied and I had applied to be a smoke jumper for years, but never really got picked up. And then um, 
after the 96 fire season, I told myself that I was going to apply one more year. And then if nothing happened, I was going to get a real job. You know, the, the quintessential, you know, air quotes, real job. Yeah, this is what everybody says, too. It's like, I'm going to get this perm position or else this is my last year in fire. Yeah, I call bullshit. This is, that's never how it works. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so um, I applied one last time. I applied to just one place this time because um, I wanted to live in Central Oregon. And I figured, you know, I'll just throw it all out there. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Um, and in the spring of 97, I got a call from the Redmond Smoke Jumper base offering me, you know, an opportunity to rookie. Hell yeah, that's and awesome. So I uh, came home. This is back before cell phones, and it was on like a recorder machine, you know. And I listened to the recording. I called them back, and I said, yeah, I'll be there. Um, went to the, the girl that I was living with at that time and said, I'm moving to Central Oregon. Uh, you can come if you want, but uh, that's that's where I'm going. So <laughs> did she take you both, up on your offer? Yeah, we both moved to oh, Bend. Yeah. Um, before I had even started training, you know, rookie training. I think we moved in April, and rookie training didn't start till June. And so I was all the eggs were in one basket. I didn't know if I was going to make it or not, and I was I was scared to, to death. It was like, man, if I don't make it through rookie training, then now what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're pretty much ass out of a job if you don't make it. Exactly. So I just, it was, I was all in. That's badass though, man. So what was Redmond like? What was your time at Redmond? Uh, so I spent from 97 till, uh, just last February, pretty much there. Um, I went all the way from, you know, temp smoke jumper to permanent, then to a spotter, then to an assistant foreman. And then, uh, I left as the uh, operations manager there. So what's a day in the life of like an operations manager over there at, uh, at, a, at any typical jump base? Um, just, you know, during, during the busy part of the season, say like there's a bus going on, you're there, you know, you get in at, you know, seven or eight o'clock. We make sure that, you know, you try to figure out how many jumpers you're going to have. And then in the morning, um, gather some stuff up for a briefing because you're going to brief the crew. Um, go through roll call, you set the loads, um, brief the crew, weather, you know, what's going on around you, everything like that. And then um, you're talking to the dispatch, you're talking to other smoke jumper bases about what they've got available if, you know, you're going to need a boost, and things like that. Just a lot of communication back and forth. And then you're just waiting for dispatch to give you a call and say somebody's ordering a load of jumpers. Hell yeah, that's awesome. So you've done it all at the at the uh, Redmond base, basically. You've been from the rookie to rigger to all the way up to operations manager. That's pretty badass, man. I am more than fortunate that that uh, I got the opportunity to do all that. Yeah, that's pretty badass, man. So everybody out there is always going to ask the question. I know we you guys can't really talk about rookie training or anything like that. It's kind of like Fight Club, right? first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club right so in your opinion what does it take to be a smoke jumper um you know obviously you have to be in shape but it's not a strength thing it's more of a mindset um you know i've worked with people that you know women that probably weigh 110 or 120 pounds tiny people that put that same amount of weight on their back and, and pack it out and it's it's so it's it's that mindset and that drive um 
to get through rookie training, I think it's all about just you're going to have to understand that the, the, the trainers don't want you to fail, but they're going to take you to your limit because the job takes you to your limit all the time. And so you can be in some really, really stressful situations, just like any wildland firefighter, but kind of unique situations where, you know, you're in the aircraft and it's, it's hotter and shit and it's turbulent and you're sick. People throwing up. <laughs> people throwing up and no, literally, man. And, and, and then you're about to jump into something that looks scary as hell, but you gotta, you gotta put your, you know, your game face on and you gotta make sure you got it all together. Oh yeah. Well, we had a rule on the hell attack crew. It's like, if you're going to get air sick, it's either in your flight bag or down your yellow. If you're going to yak. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you know, the, the guys, the guys listen to this probably laugh. Cause I was like, I had a very barfed all the time. <laughs> Did you get air sick a lot? Oh yeah. Yeah. I would get air sick all the time. Um, Nope, did I lose you? I became a sp- Yeah, oh, a little bit. There we go. You're back. You're back. Um, back when you know when I was a spotter, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily get sick all the time because I had something else to concentrate on. But yeah, there was there were times. A couple of my buddies were saying that they only got air sick when they couldn't see out the windows, when they couldn't see the ground, and if they're like flying like on the edge of a thunderstorm or some pretty bad turbulence. Um, they would say that if they could see the ground, they wouldn't get airsick. Is that a, any truth to that? I, I think it's, yeah, absolutely. Or I think it's just probably, it's personal, you know, whatever makes somebody airsick. To me, a lot of times it was the, the smell of the, the jet A, the exhaust and everything from the engines. Oh, it's not like you guys are in a cushy, like, commercial flight. You guys are packed into a twin otter <laughs> jet A fumes yeah. just fumigating the fucking entire cabin. <laughs> The otters and that, you know, in Redmond, we had Sherpas. Um, they still have Sherpas there. And it's a little roomier, but yeah, you're, you're packed in there. It's summertime. It's hot. You're in a jumpsuit. It, you know, you're sweating. It's it's uh, it's pretty uncomfortable at times. Yeah, I bet, man. So speaking of Sherpas versus otters, man, what are some of like, the performance differences between those? Um, the, you know, it, it's the... the um, Capabilities of the aircraft are different, and the choices that you know why the Forest Service and the BLM use different aircraft are for different reasons. Um, a Sherpa carries 10 smoke jumpers um, and cargo. It's a little bit larger. Um, the the new models that they have that they just acquired, the um, tailgate, the actual rear of um, the fuselage comes down. There's a door. So they'll be able to deliver a lot more cargo, like palletized cargo out the back. So you could just um, drop that rear that rear door and just start kicking a pair of cargo out the back door? Exactly. That's pretty badass. Uh, you'll see a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of stuff on social media, but over the years, you know, jumping in Alaska and stuff, they use a Casa 212, which is just, uh, um, it, it, it's the same, same deal where the, the, rear tailgate comes down and that that's how they deliver a ton of supplies to all different kind of fires in Alaska because there are no roads or anything. And so paracargo is a really big deal in Alaska smoke jumper base. Oh yeah. I've seen a lot of pictures coming out of Alaska right now. Even the hotshot crews are getting a lot of paracargo because that's, well, that's the only way you guys are going to get chow or supplies or fuel or whatever. Exactly. 
yeah, they'll load it up wherever, usually in Fairbanks, but some of the outstations do it. And then, you know, they have a set crew of jumpers that are like, you're on PC today. And so, you know, they're not on the jump list. They're working PC and they're, they're packing, wrapping and strapping pair of cargo and then flying out and kicking it. And it's all on, you know, pallets and whatnot. That's pretty badass, man. So my question to you, though, about the smoke jumper program, what do you think the future is of? Do you think it's here to stay? Because I've heard a lot of like, especially from the the rotor nerd kind of people out there, they're saying that the capabilities of the new uh, some of the new ships out there, they say they're going to overtake smoke jumping. And I call bullshit, of course. Well, you know, they've got the, the type one there's out of, I think it's out of Boise was the, yeah. the black rock and that type one that carries probably 12 firefighters. Um, I think, I, I don't know, but yeah, that's a, that's an awesome tool, but the smoke jumper program's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, speed range and payload was what we always said. Um, and it's not a competition, it's just a different tool for sure. You can deliver 10 smoke jumpers into a wilderness fire in no time. Um, and you know, the helicopter world, the rappelling world, absolutely is a, it's a great asset too, um, to deliver in some of those areas that just aren't sweet jumper terrain. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing too, it's like, it's a different tool and they both have like jumpers versus repellers or any other hell attack, you know, they all have specific uh, missions that they're supposed to carry out. So I don't think any of these programs are going anywhere. No, it, 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 if at all, I would say that, you know, hopefully they get looked at and and get a bigger budget for their programs to bolster IA because that's the biggest thing. It's like, you know, jumpers and the hell attack and repellers, that's IA and that's the biggest part of fighting fire. It's like, you know, we're at that 97th percentile where we're catching 97% of the IA fires, those fires, but the 3% of them that are getting away are the largest, most cost, you know, effect, cost, um, costliest fires. Yeah, you got to hit them hard while they're small or else they're going to turn into those catastrophic fires, man. And, and you've obviously seen this over your long career of firefighting, but fires are getting hard. They're burning hotter. They're becoming more catastrophic. We have an increasing incurrence of uh, people living in the wooey and fire season's getting longer, man. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's crazy. We'll see how it goes, man. Hopefully... Uh, Hopefully we can continue these programs and hopefully they'll realize that uh, these programs need more funding and they can yeah. bolster it like you're saying. Exactly. So now that you're out of the jumping world, man, uh, let's get into the topic of uh, where you are now and how you got there. Where I am now. So I work at a coordination center. There's one, two, three, four. I can't remember how many geographic areas there are, but essentially... The Pacific Northwest is one of the geographic areas, Great Basin, North Ops, South Ops, Southwest, Northern Rockies, Rocky Mountain, Alaska, Eastern area, and uh, Southern area. And so I work in the office that um, is the co coordination center for the Pacific Northwest. Okay, so what do you do over there? You said you're an aircraft coordinator? Um, aircraft coordinator slash aviation specialist. So. Uh, in the past, the, the history of this office has never really had an uh, aircraft coordinator where a lot of the other um, geographic areas do have aircraft, aircraft coordinators. Um, for whatever reason, they, you know, they, they've 
been fine without it. Um, but over the last handful of years, I've taken um, fire assignments essentially to this office when the MAC um, support group is in place. So I take like a two week fire assignment, come up here and do the job that I'm doing now permanently. Um, and how I got here, I kind of walked into my boss's office, um, said, I want to work for you. I want to work in this office. Um, before that, um, we could dive right into it if you want. Um, I was involved with a, uh, a fatality of one of our crew at Redmond in 2016, a guy by the name of Ray Rubio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, we talked about this a little bit, and uh, I was actually uh, on Redmond Hot Shots in 2016, so it was it was definitely a, definitely a, a heavy thing. Yeah, it, it, I mean it's a it's a podcast in its own the entire story of what happened. But Ray was with one of our burn modules um, in Region Eight in the fall. We, you know, most of the bases send like you know eight person burn modules to the southeast in the in the fall and the spring. You know, in the off seasons, uh, 2016 was a banner fire year in the southeast there was fires everywhere so that module wasn't doing a lot of burning they were doing a lot of firefighting um ray was on his second tour down there and um it was his last day it was just right before thanksgiving a couple days before thanksgiving and they were in birmingham they were to fly home the next day and ray suffered some sort of fall nobody knows what happened nobody can answer it um they found him in a parking garage um, unconscious he fell about 15 feet landed on his head basically um, we got the call um, from the rest of the guys that were down there um, saying that Ray's in the hospital and the docs were giving him about you know less than 10 percent chance of surviving so uh, the wildland firefighter foundation flew his wife down there immediately and then you know we were all at work trying to like understand what was comprehend what was happening and but we knew that you know we had a we had to go there and be a part of it and so we also knew that we were going to have a we were rotating that module out so there was guys that already had travel plans to go um so i was raised supervisor i was operations manager and and so and it was essentially kind of my turn to get to uh, be assigned as like a family liaison Essentially, when you know somebody's injured in the hospital someplace, um, somebody from work would go and, and be that family liaison and that kind of like hospital liaison to take care of all the Albuquerque stuff and the HR stuff. Um, so I, you know, I signed up and said, "Yeah, I'll go." And so, a handful of us flew on Thanksgiving Day to Birmingham, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was, it was shockingly it changed my life essentially for uh forever this is one of your homies too so i mean i can't imagine what that'd be like for you i mean i've never lost somebody in the fire service that's i mean i've lost friends before but never someone that close to me that i've worked directly with yeah and you know we we hadn't lost him yet um he's he's still alive uh we got there um thanksgiving night we went in the hospital and went to see him. We, a couple of the boroughs were still with him in the hospital, and they looked terrible. They had been there for a day or two already, and they didn't know. They were, you know, they were heading home, and this happened, and so now they're there. And Ray is, you know, in 
ICU with this dent in his head because the surgeons took part of his skull out so the the brain swelling would you know have some place to go um the next morning <clears throat> myself and uh another guy another one of the jumpers sat with his wife as the neurosurgeon explained exactly what the options were and essentially you know they were she was given three options one was you know don't do anything and see if the swelling goes down um two was this aggressive surgery that would most likely ray would never really recover from he would never be the same he would never leave the bed he would never talk three was um essentially put him in what's called like a comfort care where they would just you know ease him away and take take most of the 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 support systems from him and just keep him comfortable until he passed um so we held julie's hand his wife as she got that information it was really really difficult um to hear that and 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 then to to support her in that role and and you're like you know i was really glad i was there for it but also i was like I, you know, I need, it was like, how the hell, what, what are we doing here? Um, and as this progressed, um, it, it, you know, this was, this went on for days. Um, and as things progressed, there were, uh, the forest service had put together what was called a care team. So whenever there's a, a serious injury or a fatality or something like that, they do put together a care team. And it, it was essentially, there was a actually a type one IC. She was in charge of the care team. And then there were essentially like the branch chiefs of everything you could imagine, the branch chief of travel, the branch chief of um, HR, the branch chief of, you know, pay and stuff like that. It was like, we would get on a call every single day and there was there was help there was a liaison from the regional office here that was actually there at the hospital with us too just by chance because it was so busy already in region eight that you know there was a bunch of people there on fire assignments and so there happened to be some some region six folks there so every day we would get on this call and they would help me um figure out how to get you know ray you know make sure ray was still getting paid uh, it, because he was still alive, make sure his wife, you know, her hotel was paid for, her food was paid for, make sure that we could get, you know, his son to travel out to see him and stuff like that. Um, and the whole time, um, his wife was still trying to wrap her brain around making this decision that would essentially, you know, end his life. And um, there, there was a lot of, there was a lot of struggle there too, because you know, there was family that didn't necessarily that thought that maybe Ray would turn around and come out of it, even though the docs were like, "No, this is never going to happen." Um, and so there was a there was there was this there was a, a lot of um, family struggle that, as a peer and as a supervisor, you just had to step back and say, "You know, don't be a part of it. You can't be a part of that." Um, they didn't have a um what's the document that you sign where you agree to like uh it's a i can't remember that the, the name of it um but essentially it's like a form that if this happens to me i want this to happen oh like a living will yeah exactly 
and they didn't um, they didn't have that and so it was it was very difficult for his wife to to make that decision um, so I, I spent two weeks out there I flew home for a couple of days and then I flew back um, and by then this is middle to late December and um, there's there was still jumpers there the entire time um, until the very end where I was uh, as, when I flew back I kind of swapped out with the last jumper that was there um, and then carried the torch until he passed on the 19th of December which was essentially four weeks that we were all there um, in the hospital with him um, and then the entire time I kept thinking to myself I, I mean I was I was shattered I didn't know what I was doing he he passed finally um, and then we had some real struggles getting him home um, as far as what what we believed would be the right way um, and the honoring way to bring him home or what would be the most economical way which um, that's that's what the government wanted to do um, the wildland firefighter foundation flew julie and i home first class on december 23rd after we had him cremated and she she carried him on the plane under her arm and that's how ray got home um and i the last thing that when we were flying home um we turning on final at Redmond and I've done it I don't know how many hundreds of times in an airplane looking down at the ground knowing exactly you know juniper bush juniper trees and runway crossings and looking at the trail I run on and his wife turned and looked at me and she goes I didn't kill my husband did I Gary and I pretty much lost it holy shit it's like no no you didn't kill your husband this this is this is what had to happen um, we got her home. Um, I got home, and I tipped over pretty bad. There wasn't any mental health for us when we were there. There was uh, a little bit um, when we all got back, and it was, you know, quote-unquote over. Um, for me, it didn't end. It, it got even worse. Um, things, things in my brain weren't right anymore. Um, some very good friends of mine, my, my sister, who's in the mental health fields, like, dude, you need, you need to go talk to somebody. You, you, you have to go talk to somebody. You have to talk to a professional. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And she's like, no, you, you have to. And so it's like, well, how do I find somebody? And she's like, well, you get on this website and you go through this list of all the doctors in your area um, and read their bios. Is that uh, through like the EAP or anything like that? Or did you have to, were you just basically kind of left to your own devices to figure this shit out on your own? I was left to all my own devices to figure it out. Holy shit, um, man. So, and luckily, you know, my family helped me figure it out because there wasn't anybody else that was going to do it. Um, so I was going through all the bios and I found this, this guy, this doctor, um, who worked for the Forest Service back in the day. And I was like, Boom, you're the man because I don't want to have to spend half the time just explaining wildland firefighting and everything we do because you'll be able to, you know, you speak some of the language. Yeah, he'll get uh, it. He'll understand he'll, it. Exactly. 
so I had like this, I had an appointment for, it was like this hour long consultation and I ended up spending two hours in there. Um, and he, he uh, I got the wallet here. He gives me this piece of paper that says, um, I still have it. And he diagnoses me with PTSD, severe multiple exposures and direct and vicarious. So I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, you need to not go to work for two weeks. You need to stay away from everything. And then you need to come see me twice a week. And, and then we'll start working on some stuff. I was like, all right. But by then I was slipping into this terrible depression and, and things really weren't the way they should be in my mind. It was like your brain is on like a certain track and then this traumatic thing happens and it, it jumps the track and it goes on this other track. And then that train visits all these stations in your life that were these moments that were terrifying, but you survived. And then you kind of high-fived yourself through it and said, that's just a part of the job. You know, every time that a big limb came out of a tree and just landed right next to you, you're like, whoo, high-five, you know, miss that. But now everything terrified me. I was like this hyper critical of everything around me. And it got to a point where I was with a friend of mine at the coast and um, the Oregon coast is beautiful and it's got some high cliffs on it and trees and I love it. Up there, man. What's that? I said, I love it up on the Oregon coast, man. I used to work in uh, gold beach and uh, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. So we were there and, took a hike down to this this lighthouse and it was on this kind of peninsula of land that it was a couple hundred feet high in these big cliffs and I was standing on the edge of the cliff and I just I about threw up and I, I had to back away and she's like what's wrong and it's like I don't know I just felt like I had to jump but I wasn't suicidal yet I just my body wanted me to jump do you think that's from like smoke jumping for so long? You just like see a, you saw the ground and you're just like, I need to exit this situation, like exit the plane or. Precisely. So I take that back to the doctor and I said, dude, I have this feeling on high places and I can't stand it. It's like every time I'm on a high place, I feel like I have to jump off of it. And he's like, you, because over the years you've trained your brain to jump and you're rewarding it with, camaraderie, good times, firefighting, everything that you are, you jump and then you're rewarded with it. You've, you've trained your brain to reward yourself with that. And now you're in such a bad place that your body, your mind wants to put you in that good place. And I was like, well, I don't fucking like it. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of therapy involved with that. Um, and, and a lot of it came to the fact that now I'm like essentially terrified of heights and everything that I really enjoyed doing as part of the job terrified me. Um, and so we're going to wheel all the way back to around to how I got to where I am now. Um, the Forest Service, I applied for what was called a reasonable accommodation. And they supported you through that? Yeah. And the Forest Service supported me through it. Um, my supervisors at the time totally supported me the entire time. 
you know, this happened in 2000, you know, Ray's accident happened in 2016. I didn't jump again after that. I didn't jump the season um, 2017 or 2018 um, with the support of my my boss. He was 100%. It was like, you know, whatever you need to do. Um, and then we sat down and at one point and said, you know, I can't I can't just work here and not jump. That's not that's not the way it works. And so I applied for the reasonable accommodation and the, you know, that's a, that's a whole entire process of explaining your disability and, and having to go through evaluations and everything like that. And the forest service um, agreed with it. And part of that agreement is to place me or, you know, the disabled in another position um, like and kind of what you were doing, but not, you know, doing that. So I got, you know, essentially another fire position, but not like smoke jumping. Gotcha. And so um, I had enjoyed doing what I do here in Portland so much over the years that I sat down with the, the, my boss here and I said, I, I really want to work here with you. And so some powers to be came together and made it all happen. And I'm, I'm fucking fortunate as hell for it. That's awesome, man. And now do you still get to go out every once in a while or do you just not care to go out anymore? Um, yeah, I just don't care to go out anymore. It's, it's troubling to me to, I miss it, but I just, it's not something that I care to do anymore. I don't blame um, you. I'm, I'm frustrated um, a lot that there wasn't any true mental health for us at that time, because I know I'm not the only one that suffered a lot during, because there was a lot of the bros that were there that suffered a great deal. Um, but I definitely was wired in a way that something affected me um, quite a bit. Well, we got to keep in mind that not everybody's suffering is the same as another's. Precisely. Yeah, and that's one thing that, uh, uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Minda O's. She actually just, uh, she does some work for the SISM teams and uh, some mental health programs for a couple of the agencies, and she actually said that to me. And uh, that kind of, that truth kind of resounded with me for a while. I 100% agree with it, and I think that in the wildland firefighter world, I think that there's so much, um, there, there's just so much opportunity for just bad, ment I mean, just not taking care of each other mentally. Um, I think that we see a lot of shit, and then just kind of chalk it up to that's the job and high five and walk away and 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 say, I hope that doesn't happen again, or I hope I don't have to see that again. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people compare it to the military as well, which I hate drawing that comparison, but when you look at it, we are a paramilitary organization, and our level of engagement is directly derived from the military. That's where we derive all of our SOPs and our standards from. If you look at the military, these guys are dodging bullets every day. They may not come home tomorrow, but we, on the other hand, we just have a different front. We may not come home tomorrow. And I think that's where those similarities lie is that we, after we dodge that bullet, so to speak, air quotes here, that we just go home and high five about it. I hope it never happens again. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I really hope that the newer, the, the new generation of firefighters out there is a lot more, um, I don't want to say touchy feely, but it, takes care of one another and um 
checks in with one another. I've got a really good friend, um, one of my rookie bros, who was uh, directly involved with the Twist River fatalities. Um, and I know that tipped him over pretty good. And he, um, he and I talk about it all the time, and it's like, don't ever ask me how I'm doing because I'm just going to lie to you. Just check in with me. And so it's like when we talk to each other, it's like, hey, man, just checking in. And, and that's all it takes is just to, just to check in. I think that's important, too, because if you look at it, man, we're pretty much just balls to the wall for six, eight months out of the year. And then we're just dropped with nothing. And we kind of just go our separate ways and we hardly ever talk to each other. We're not like together that much in the wintertime. And I think we need to do a better job as a whole with supporting each other and checking in on it, on each other, like you were saying, in the wintertime, man, when we're off season and off of operations. Yeah, and especially, it's like, uh, as far as the mental health, okay, every other kind of high-stress organization, police, uh, municipal fire departments, uh, military, they all have some sort of mental health there. The only thing that we have is EAP. That's and it. It's, and it's up to us to go and then EAP you only get like I think it's just like two or three visits and then you're reevaluated um, instead of having somebody on site there going I'm checking in with you how are you I think that we need to do a better job I mean it's just one of those many things that are you know our organizations are fraught with problems but you know it takes a long time to address these problems. I mean, it's a well, bureaucracy, it's, so. And it's a, it's a silent disease, um, and it's it's got a stigma, and that's the biggest reason I want to talk to you about it on a podcast and say, you know, I'm sorry, it's not it's not about just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, it, it, it's a lot more. Depression is a lot more than just like, hey, man, you know, snap out of it. it. There's real physical, mental things that are happening, um, and it's it's important. You know, the 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 suicide rate in wildland fire is enormous, and it shouldn't be. Um, who was it? Was um, Nelda St. Clair? She she was saying when she was my first uh, guest as uh, on my podcast, and she was saying that we have the highest suicide rate out of any vocation worldwide per capita. And that's crazy because everybody that I ever worked with, it seems like, man, everybody's so happy. And then I start thinking about it. It's like, yeah, that guy committed suicide. That guy committed suicide. You know, I can count on it. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> but I worked with him and everybody seems so happy. Yeah, man. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to find resources for help. And I think that that stigma needs to be, uh, well, I think it, I think that stigma needs to just go out the wayside, man. We need to talk about our problems. We need to get that shit out. Yep, oh, absolutely. And, I, you know, my deal was my deal, but I landed on my feet um, and I still have, you know, with, with therapy, PTSD, can you can live with it. And, you know, I still have some triggers that go on. But after three years of therapy, it's, you know, it's totally manageable. And. I'm happy. I landed on my feet and I've got a sweet job. So it's good to have you back, man. So <laughs> what about a little tribute to uh, Ray here, man? Let's tell me about Ray. What was he like, man? Cause I didn't, I've never, I never met him. I mean, I may have met him in passing when I was over at the jump base, but uh, what was he like, man? <laughs> uh, you're going to make me cry. Um, That's all right. He was, man. 
he was the guy that would fix anything. He was he could fix anything. He was always tinkering around. He would if you jumped the fire with Ray, you knew you're gonna have a good time. Pretty um, much have MacGyver on your jump. <laughs> you had MacGyver on your jump. I don't think I ever saw the man in a bad mood. Um, and he was also the guy that like an example we used to go uh down and work on the francis marion in, in south carolina um in the fall <clears throat> and francis marion was like this old school ranger station and you'd work all day and you come in at night and then you know you you fuel your rigs right um and so the, the little pump house was like this cobwebby little shack you know that had the little clipboard where you're you know you're signing in and you're putting the management code down and logging your like, fuel <laughs> logging your fuel and it's at night and we go in there and turn the light on and boom the bulb goes out and ray would raise kind of guy that was like he would fish around the entire compound looking for a, you know a new light bulb so if somebody else didn't have to do it you know he would take care of it that's so. awesome dude shout yeah. out to ray man sounds like an awesome yeah. dude he, he was so now that you're up at uh the coordination center up in uh, Portland, man. What? So explain to me, like, what exactly you do up there. So, <clears throat> in the summertime, fire season, um, we have you know all, all the GACs and the nation have their PL levels. You know, PL one, PL two, PL three, PL four, and PL five, and that's based on activity and availability of resources. When um, a, a you know a geographic area goes into PL four to five, they usually um, have the MAC groups um, seated, and a MAC group is the multi-agency coordination group. There's one for each geographic area, and then there's a national multi-agency ge- uh, coordination group. So you know as well as I that wildland fire knows no boundaries, so it burns. Forest Service, BLM, state, DNR, all kinds of different lands, right? Mm -hmm. So a multi-agency coordination group is a representative from each one of those agencies, right? And so you have in in our geographic area, Pacific Northwest, I think that there's, I think there's nine, seven or nine um, individuals that represent each agency that fire affects. And when it gets to PL4 and 5, you're talking about the times when there's not enough resources to go around. Um, there's, you can't just have every Type 1 helicopter in the nation um, on your fire. So these folks sit together and they prioritize each incident. Um, so I sit with another group, the support group for them, and the support group is a smaller group of an actual MAC coordinator. Um, that's a, that's actually an IQCS position. And then myself, an aviation person. And then there's an operations person. And then there's a logistics person. And so our group works with all the incidents that are out there. So my day starts in the morning at seven um, and I have a conference call and I talk to all the AOBDs on all the team fires out there see what their needs are, how their days go, you know, how their last shift went, what their aviation needs are, what they're projecting out in the future. Um, on that call also are the unit aviation officers and a, hand, a handful of other um, aviation folks. 
but that that's the test of you know that's the beginning of the day to see what the needs are going to be and then throughout the day there's a series of conference calls with the ICs of all the teams that are out there the type one and type two fires um, and then the prioritization process that the actual MAC group goes through um, and they prioritize we give them information we're essentially subject matter experts um, and we're talking to the fires and the teams and then we're giving that group um, the information that they need uh, they prioritize and then we as a group kind of allocate the resources with that MAC group's um, authority they tell us where they want those resources to go so if a certain fire is priority number one we may send you know more hotshot crews or more type one helicopters to that that incident so you're basically up there trying to move chess pieces around and control these prioritized fires first and then move on to lesser priority exactly gotcha see not a lot of people know about this stuff at least the boost on the ground um if you ask them what a mac coordinator is they'll be like a what <laughs> Right. Well, the MAC coordinator who, who is, you know, they go through, there's there's course for it. Um, these are, these are um, very experienced people um, that coordinate and help facilitate the meetings with the actual MAC group. Um, so, to, so that group of people can have um, educated discussions about how they're going to prioritize fires because you, especially at PL5, um, I call it vapor lock. You just go into this this vapor lock. There's there's no more resources. There's no more Type One crews. Everybody wants dozens of Type One crews and dozens of Type One helicopters, but there's just not enough to go around. So you have to decide. You know, we've just got this emerging fire. It's gonna it's it's making a run. What do we do? Do we do we throw a whole bunch of? It gets a high priority because we can catch it fast with less resources. <clears throat> or do we sink a bunch of resources into this fire that's been on the landscape for a month and a half and really isn't going to go anywhere until it rains? That's crazy, man. This is like the things that are they're cool to learn about because you're now you're getting the big picture from the ground boots on the ground, which is my perspective, all the way up to your perspective where you're seeing things from the big picture. It's like I said, the other end of the Pulaski. It's it's pretty cool. It's like the office that I work in has some of the smartest, most professional people I've ever worked with. And it's not a dig on all the bros that I used to work with because they're as professional as can be too. But, you know, we have meteorologists that, you know, they just dig deep into fire weather and stuff like that. And then we've got the fire and fuels behavior analysts that just geek out on all the fire and fuels behavior stuff. Um, and then GIS, you know, people that make the coolest maps in the world. And it's, it's all, it, and it all kind of gels together in this, in this group that, you know, produces the information that they, these people need to make their decisions. That's badass, man. So you're like pretty much in the war room for region six. Yeah. I sit right there with big map and, you know, all the, all the computer monitors and everything like that. It's essentially the war room. There's a, there's a hell of a lot of conference calls, I'll tell you that. I bet. <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts, man. I mean, I couldn't imagine what, like, the logistical needs are for supporting a Type 1 fire, you know, some sort of large campaign fire. It's it's amazing. And, I don't, you know, 
I don't even know what it is, but when you talk to those folks, there's a, it's at 7.30 and that's the IC call and that's when all the ICs um, get on and they give us updates of their fires. And I, I could never imagine being a type one IC, type two IC, that the, the politics that go on with what they're, they're dealing with is, it's just amazing. And they go, they go from one to like last year, they just went from one fire to the other, to the other, it was so busy. Could you imagine like the amount of stress that you'd have to take take on to like to fulfill that job as a type one IC? Yeah, I I don't think I'd want that. <laughs> nope, not in, not in a snowball's chance in hell. There's no way I'd want that. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, man. So, what's the future looking like for you, man? Where do you go from here? I don't know. You know, when when uh, you sent me the outline and that was one of the last questions, I was like, that's a pretty good question. I don't know. <laughs> I've got a. I turn 50 next week. I'll be eligible to retire. Happy um, early birthday. And thank you. Uh, I'll be eligible to retire in, in like two years. And I don't know. You know, it's right now I want to dig into this job and make it what it is and uh, and do a really good job at it and succeed at it. And then from there, who knows? I don't, you know, maybe a little flats fly fishing down in Belize occasionally, but... That sounds awesome. That sounds like a hell of a retirement plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a uh, that was part that was part of the recovery was going to to Belize when uh, after everything went down in two thousand early two thousand seventeen. I spent a little time down there. That's awesome, man. You ever thought about getting hooked up with the Wildland Firefighter Foundation and uh, maybe working with those guys to share your experiences and maybe help future firefighters that have maybe experienced something similar to you? Yeah, and, you know, I should have mentioned during during that entire time, Vicky Minor was on the phone with me probably every single day she's when a I was in Birmingham. She's, and then uh, she's got such a wonderful heart. It's it, it, it's it, I just can't explain how much she helped. Um, and she was there the entire time, and the foundation was there for all of us, and and flying um, not only Ray's family, but. You know, they flew some of the wives of the jumpers that were down there so they could be with them um, during that time. And then flew like a, a friends of ours that were nurses that could, ex, you know, help explain what was going on. I mean, they just, the foundation was amazing. Um, and Vicki and I still stay in touch with each other. We've talked about mental health quite a bit. Um, and, you know, if there's an opportunity for me to hook up with them, I, I wouldn't hesitate. Well, Vicky and Burke, I know if you guys are listening to this, hit up our old pal Gary here. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There we go. So, yeah, man, that's some seriously heavy shit that you've been through. And I'm glad that uh, you've moved away from that situation. And now you're you're regaining that structure, that that help. And you have that that clarity you're you're getting it back together man i'm I'm really happy for you appreciate that and you know i really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast because you're you're bringing a voice to the wildland firefighter i mean we've got plenty of social media out there but i love listening um to your different guests and um the wildland world yeah it's pretty neat man it's it's uh it's definitely taking off and i hope that it continues i hope i can uh come up with enough content to just you know I guess fill in the masses about what we do. Well, yeah, there's plenty of content out there. You know it. So. Oh yeah, people got stories, and that's the thing is we're you know we're the unseen warriors. We're the people that uh, are basically 
our story is shared through word of mouth. It's almost like our own little tribe, but we don't have anything to, I don't know, we don't have like some grand movie or any like crazy thing to, you know, demonstrate what we do. So I think that was something that always intrigued me about the job was because we are kind of like this silent little um, army that's out there that, you know, nobody really knows what we do and nobody really understands it unless you've been a part of it. And they just don't understand fire camp and or jumping or repelling. And it's they just they don't it's just out there and it's silent. Someone tells me that they uh, especially the public won't especially understand what cardboard flip flops are. <laughs> Your buddies are throwing you under the bus, man. <laughs> Those were so comfortable. After you've been in your boots walking around in the desert and the rocks for, you know, days on end, just to be able to take your boots off, make some cardboard flip-flops. Dude, tell us about that story, man, because uh, Johnny was telling me about that. Oh, uh, it was a fire that we jumped um, that out in Steens Mountains country. Steens in Oregon is like in uh, southeast Oregon. It's really kind of remote country. Um, desert sage and juni sort of stuff and we jumped this fire um there was a whole load of us 10 and uh it was one of the most epic thunderstorms i'd ever been involved with we we jumped and then the spotter put the cargo up near the fire because we jumped about i don't know maybe a half a mile away or so just because it was a better spot and during the time that we were walking from the jump spot to the fire this thunderstorm rolls over and it's just banging bolts left and right it was terrible it was like raining and the fire was blown out because of the wind gusts and everything and and then this this rainstorm hits us and like all these fucking lightning bolts are just hitting all around us and it's if that didn't give us all ptsd i don't know what (laughs) and then finally it passes the fire's out because it rained um, and so we've got about 60 acres of just like smoldering cow pies and stuff. Um, so we spent some time just kind of mopping up and walking around and doing our thing. And, you know, the sun comes out again, it's hot and kind of finish the day and make camp. And I want to get out of my boots, but I didn't have anything else to wear. And so, you know, take a piece of cardboard from one of the, the fire packs we had and just kind of outline my feet on them, cut it out. And then took some Kevlar strapping and made some flip-flops some sandals. <laughs> it was that's, so comfortable. Dude, that's epic, man. <laughs> and dude, like you said, man, there's nothing like getting out of your like shitty soaked boots, sweat soaked boots, man, at the end of the day. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And just being able to kind of walk around, roll up, roll up the Nomex, you know. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, that's epic, man. Oh, man. Well, dude, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story, man. And uh, I really appreciate that you uh, you got you came on the show and that you shared the story of Ray and what you went through and gave some insight onto mental health and what you can do to, well, help other people and help yourself as well, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. And, you know, if there's folks out there that think that or feel like they need help, you know, then you probably do and reach out to somebody um, because it, it's, it's totally survivable. You can, you can dig yourself out of that hole. It takes an army, but there's help out there, man. Yep, there is. And you can't do it alone. No, absolutely not. Break that stigma, man. We need to break that stigma. Right. Well, I think that's the tie-in point, man. What do you think? You got anything else? 
I've, I've talked out. That's great. I feel good about it. Cool, man. Well, obviously, I'm going to give a shout-out to Ray, man. And uh, do you have any other shout-outs that you want to get? Any heroes, homies, mentors, anything like that? Um, you know, obviously, Ray, his wife, um, the, the foundation for sure. Right on, man. Well, dude, thanks for coming on the show, man. And uh, look forward to talking to you again, man. Let's get you back on here. Right on. <laughs> right on, dude. Cheers. Yep. Later. All right, guys, there we go. Episode number 12 in the books. Gary, dude, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, coming by the show and sharing your incredible story. It's a heavy episode, uh, some heavy topics, and uh, yeah, I hope that your story inspires people and uh, breaks that, that stigma, lets people know that there's resources out there and there's people that can help, whether it be professional or we can even rely on our own friends sometimes. Maybe they can make recommendations to maybe who to see. But, uh, yeah, Gary, glad that you're doing better, man. And I'm glad that you're still attached to the fire service. It may not be operationally, but it's from, well, like you'd like to say, from the other end of the Pulaski. Covered a lot of subjects. We talked about mental health, of course. That was the uh, big overlying topic of the episode. And I deeply appreciate that, man. Talked about... uh. Life is a jumper as well. Cardboard flip-flops and uh, camaraderie. And uh, Mac coordinating groups, what you do up in the coordination center, which I think is pretty cool because not a lot of people know how all the puzzle pieces are put together during the summer. And usually that's way above our pay grade on for boots on the ground. And uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see what a Mac coordinator group is and uh, how the uh, resources are divvied up. Just want to say thanks for uh, tuning in, guys. Uh, definitely keep sharing the message. Keep uh, tagging us in your photos. If you guys got any epic photos or videos, make sure you tag us or send them our way. And uh, we'll definitely feature you guys on the old socials. And, uh, of course, always drop by uh, iTunes and uh, give us a rating. So, anyways, guys. Uh, well, I'm probably going to be taking off for two weeks. So, yeah. There's going to be a lull in the action. So, you guys will deal with it, though. Anyways, guys, thanks for tuning in. Catch you on the next one. Later.